0: I'm Robbie Quinn, Montgomery Bell, class of 99. I'm currently a librarian and debate coach here at MBA, and I'm here to listen and hear discussion of Lee Finger's novel, Virgil Wander, with some esteemed faculty from our English department. So uh, let's just go around and introduce ourselves. First up, Mr. Bassett, do you want to just let everybody know who you are?
1: Sure. My name is Wynn Bassett. I teach 9th and 10th grade English and I'm an associate dean of the high school.
2: And I'm Sean Kench. I teach senior English here at MBA.
3: Ed Tarkington, senior, junior, and sophomore English.
2: Okay. Well, all the chairs are, are
0: covered and accounted for. <laughs> so, Virgil Wander is, um, is it Leafinger's second novel? Third novel. Uh, third novel. And um, simply put, it's about a man named Virgil who lives in a small Minnesota town and runs a mostly unprofitable movie theater. Um, I'm curious what each of you personally brought to reading this novel, either because you had read his other two, or you have a small-town background, or you have a kite hobby, or (laughs) you secretly dream of running your own movie theater. Let's see. Dr. Kinch, can we start with you this time?
2: Yes, yes. I remember reading this because I enjoyed Ed's review of it. His Chapter 16 review made it sound like an appealing story written by an appealing guy. So I came to it kind of with a positive feeling. And then I read it uh, during Christmas break when I am I tend to be more relaxed. I tend to read in greater chunks. So I was reading this book at 50 and 100 pages at a time, and it very much lends itself to that kind of uh, you know big chunk reading because you do, I think, as Ed pointed out, you like the setting, you like the characters. And I think you end up, kind of visualizing it pretty clearly and do I remember too there's some you know it's icy in moments of it so I was reading it in the winter and it felt cold I'm a Texan too so reading a novel about Minnesota always (laughs) I feel like I have to put on an extra pair of socks
0: (laughs) well Ed uh, referring to that review do you want to Riff on, you know, your overall take and what you brought to it or any new um, discoveries since you first uh, took a look at it.
3: When I picked this book up and started reading it, I did it on assignment, but I'd read Lee Finger before. uh, His first novel, Peace Like a River, was kind of a a breakout debut. Uh, His second novel, uh, So Wise, Young and Handsome, had been gifted to the school by Morgan Intrican uh, several years ago, uh, and I read it with uh, great interest. It seemed to be kind of uh, designed to play into the Huckleberry Finn archetypes uh, uh, that I think are appealing to a lot of Midwestern writers that sort of see that as their their tradition. And when I started reading this, the first thing that struck out to me or stuck out to me was its resemblance to Garrison Keillor's News from Lake Wobegon stories, which were so popular in the 1980s when he was still doing the Prairie Home Companion. We would go on car trips when I was a boy. My parents ordered these tapes on cassette from something called the wireless catalog. I don't know (laughs) if you guys, I think that was like the NPR catalog back then. And we would listen to these stories in which Garrison Keillor, his thick Midwestern accent and his tendency to breathe heavily through his nose into the microphone would tell these stories about uh, Midwesterners in this tiny town called Lake Wobegon and their kind of small triumphs and tragedies. They were all really comical uh, but also poignant and uh, you know relatable uh, to families growing up in small towns as I did and uh, kind of wholesome and sweet and tender and and there was a kind of church equality to it and life around the church seemed to be something that was pretty important and there was a lot of rural aspect to it and also uh, you know most of these people were descended from Scandinavian mm-hmm. families that had moved into the northern midwest uh, in the 19th century and this just really struck me immediately as kind of evoking that sensibility in a way that was really, I think, sort of appropriate and necessary because as most people know, uh, Garrison Keillor has since sort of fallen from grace (laughs) and there's a bit of a vacuum there uh, of, you know, his uh, role as a kind of genial spokesperson of Midwestern wholesomeness uh, and it seems like Mr. Inger is... Clearly, it must be descended from Scandinavians with a (laughs) name like Lee Finger. It's kind of stepping up to fill that role. And throughout, I I was struck again and again uh, by the the sort of sweetness of the story and the tenderness of everything and the kind of magical quality. There's There's a character in the story, this sort of vanished picture, uh, who throws the pitch called the Mad Mouse? Uh, and again, I thought I, around that time I had rewatched uh, The Natural, starring Robert Redford, uh, and I could kind of hear the swelling strings of the Randy Newman soundtrack mm. as I imagined this minor league ball player <laughs> stepping up onto the plate to throw the Mad Mouse and then disappear. Uh, and all of those things were very nostalgic for me, and I imagine for a, a lot of readers. And no doubt, when Lee Finger wrote the novel, he was conscious of the kind of touchstones that he was, uh, you know, kind of keying on or evoking.
2: And but he, he twists all those, too. And it's funny, remember that pitch, mm-hmm. too? It's uh, what I remember about even his, his uh, no hitter that he throws, which is kind of this legendary event in the past. Remember, he keeps getting interrupted by the mascot like there's so many these moments <laughs> of humor in it and the pitch itself is kind of goofy mm-hmm. and uh, unduplicatable it's you know it's not you know he's not gonna get you know he's not riding off into the sunset with Glenn Close or you know I mean it's it feels like a different kind of comedy in this one I, you know I hear what you're saying it just seems like he, he wants to take those touchstones and twist them in, in funny ways it remind me of Bull Durham a little bit yeah, yeah. big
0: picture mm-hmm. yeah you want to finish up? I'm good.
1: Um, well, Mr. Bassett, um, give us your take. Sure. Uh, I um, some of the things that I brought to it or that attracted me to it is I too grew up in a small town, just about two hours south of Dr. Tarkington here in Virginia, and uh, I've always had these um, stupidly romantic thoughts about small town life, and so it was that combined with the Minnesota setting, and I growing up I knew nothing about Minnesota. In grad school, I went, or a lot of people in my grad school class were these Lutherans from (laughs) Minnesota who all went to St. Olaf, and I think they were the kindest people I've met in my entire life, Mm -hmm. to this day. And I'm like, where do these people come from? Why are they like this? (laughs) And so when I heard that this book was about a small town in Minnesota, and and some of these people peopled the novel, I thought I would enjoy it, and I did.
0: Well, even though it's a cozy read and uh, relatively short, it's, it's difficult to just file it under one category or theme. You could say it's about small-town life or about family, about baseball, um, uh, movie theaters, and, and um, stolen film prints, Butch Cassidy. <laughs> so given all these different um, elements at play that Inger sets up, what really resonated the most with you? see, taking turns here. Dr. Tarkington, if you haven't covered that already.
3: Mr. Bassett, you know, talked about the, the friendliness and the, uh, the generosity of, of small-town northern Midwestern people, and when he mentioned that, I recalled uh, a comment by a, a folk singer from the Midwest who I admire about people who live in Minnesota and Michigan uh, saying, uh, in places like that, people need each other because the winters are so severe. If you see a car stopped on the side of the road when you're driving home in the winter, you, you have to stop, you can't, it's a matter of survival. And you wonder if, you know, over the, the generations that hasn't become kind of a core value that kindness is a means of survival, that community and generosity are not a choice but a necessity for survival. And certainly in the last few years in the media, we've seen a lot of talk about kind of the the peril in which the Midwest now hangs because of the changes in the economy. At the end of the, toward the end of the novel, there's actually a festival organized Mm -hmm. to kind of revive the town called Hard Luck Days in which they're hoping to lure home Bob Dylan, <laughs> really uh, nice. who a lot of people have forgotten is a northern Midwestern guy, yeah. a small town. And mean, Duluth's not a super small town, but not like this one. But yeah. uh, he's not from Minneapolis, right? Right. Uh, and uh, I just remember putting this book down and feeling like uh, the theme that resonated with me most was that you know generosity... Kindness, a sense of community, a sense that we're in this together and we will survive if we kind of lock arms and agree to take care of each other or dedicate ourselves to take care of each other. This is how small communities survived and thrived all across history and certainly across the history of this country and especially in the northern Midwest. And right now, at a time when there's in the last few years when there's been a lot of acrimony in our country and a, a sense of suspicion of other the other side uh, and fear and uncertainty about what the future will hold uh, it seems a really really powerful theme to dwell on that the answer to the problem is just to be kind and to be generous and when you see a car on the side of the road, you stop and you help somebody who needs to be helped. And when you need help, you be willing to accept it from others. And, and certainly that's something that I feel, that's just why I think this is such a, a, a great book for MBA students and part of, for the MBA community, because those are values that we have really tried, I think, very intentionally throughout our history, but especially in recent years, to emphasize mm-hmm. the centrality of community and how vital that is, uh, not just to you know, maintaining a, a, a good institution, but also to our growth as individuals and mm-hmm. in discovering our own identities and feeling enabled and, and you know, uh, entitled to pursue great things
2: especially in really hard times, Now, the, the, what makes the, all the talk about community and coming together and helping one another? Because this this novel has evil. This novel has a sinister element. Mm-hmm. And as you were talking about uh, conflicts in our country, it's got violence. It's got this, you know. And the point of comparison I make is not with uh, Keeler, who I, I see as a different kind of, you know, media personality, but with Richard Russo. You know, sure. you think about right. Empire Falls. So Empire Falls takes place in... Uh, you know, Upstate, upstate New York, area. and again, another dying industrial town. And it has a play back and forth of community and people coming together, kids who are torn about their identities. And in that book, when the violence breaks out, well, I don't want to give anything away about Virgil Wander, but there is this imminence of threat and of violence and of anger. But when you're reading it, I think you feel... Like the goodness so you're talking about, the community, the binding mm-hmm. together, the working together is going to overcome it. Whereas when you're reading Rousseau, you have this sickening feeling like it's not going to work out. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, even before the terrible things happen in that novel. So I don't know. This this book does strike me as uh, as Ed was saying it's a it's a call for community, but with a real awareness of the mm-hmm. darkness that's out there. That's what's funny. I, I think when you pick up a it's book, especially. A if you read Russo, if you read five of his books, each of them has moments of those tensions. Like, what's going to win the day? And even in Empire Falls, there's goodness. But that's a dark book. And he's got books that are darker than Empire Falls. Whereas with, with Inger, I think, you know, there's that awareness of that sinister and that darkness. But I, you
1: kind of feel when you're reading it, like, mm-hmm. things are going to turn out okay. Yeah, and for me, um, I, throughout the whole thing, I'm thinking of Wilker Percy's the moviegoer. And while the plots aren't the same and really the only connection is movies yeah. and stuff like that, in the moviegoer you have uh, the protagonist, Binks Bowling, just trying to figure out how to live. Mm-hmm. And this book imparts the answer. And I think it being kind to people. Mm-hmm. This book helps me do something that I continually fail at and just thinking about the other person and realize that person's intentions were, were good mm-hmm. instead of saying oh that person meant to do that or something like that and I think I mean what makes this book so good to me is showing people interacting with other people Mm -hmm. in mostly a a healthy way um and certainly could all learn from that yeah some guides for us here well
0: we mentioned Russo as comparison um but before we go do any of you have any recommendations for anyone out there looking for something else to read um along the lines of this one um or anything, any other works, music, or uh, movies that uh, the novel really reminded you of that you think would
2: pair well? I think, you know, uh, Ann Patchett, when she came here, she talked about how her books from Bel Canto and um, others, that she she wants to describe the moment where uh, a group of disparate individuals become a community. Mm-hmm. Uh, we talked about Gentlemen in Moscow uh, by Amher yeah. Tolls is another book where people are thrown together by circumstances and then somehow, you know, create a, uh, a vital community mm. and and survive. Um,
3: the great unappreciated masterpiece of the Midwest is My Antonia by Willa Catherine.
0: Mm.
2: I read a book right around this time, too, that was set in 1980, and it also felt like it deserved, this one I believe could, could really work as a movie, and there are some female roles I think their actresses would you know, craved to have uh, Lily, the beautiful snowplow driver, you remember, (laughs) it seems like that would be a role that, uh, but you know, Tom Barbash, uh, the the Dakota winters that's set around the time, it's the building where John Lennon was assassinated, where he lived, but Lennon is a minor character in the novel. Also where they filmed
3: Rosemary's Baby. Yeah,
2: right. Uh, the Dakotas, you know, um, and it's a fascinating book. But again, it's about a young man kind of finding his way who has a famous father. Uh, but I think it's also winning, and it shows. Um, I don't know. It shows how you can you can go through the dark periods and find your way. You know, and I feel like this book has a lot. Of it certainly made me want to watch *The
3: Natural* again, <laughs> even though I just watched it recently before I read it. I think that movie is an absolute masterpiece of escapist mm-hmm. fairy tale triumph, field of dreams, yeah. Iowa cornfield. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, everybody loves that. Uh, that's a great story.
0: Well, guys, thank you all for sharing your thoughts. You got on it. Bird Thanks the for having us. Um, and another big thank you to Morgan Enterpin. MBA class of 1973 for the donation of books from Grove Atlantic for the entire MBA community and students. Happy
3: reading, everybody.